Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Mike. Lauren. Can you think of a time when you were totally led astray by misinformation on the internet? Yeah, I remember hearing that everybody who attended CES 2020 was responsible for spreading COVID around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we as were. well, we weren't. <laughs> it turns out that was misinformation. But I was really worried because I did attend CES 2020, as did you. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, but yeah, that was that was not true. Turns out we just had the regular old CES flu. That's right. Yeah. What about you? Well, I actually thought that Balenciaga Pope was plausible. Like, I was vaguely aware that there was online discourse about it. I looked at the photo and I thought, oh, that's an interesting choice of jacket for the Pope. And then only after that did I realize that the discourse about it was that it was fake. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, that's pretty low stakes, all things considered. That time, yeah. But what's going to happen when we start falling for totally fake photos or videos during a critical election period? Or during a brutal and violent conflict. Uh, Unfortunately, that is already happening. It is. And we're going to talk about it on today's show. Let's do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And I'm Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And we're joined today by David Gilbert, one of Wired's newest writers who covers misinformation and disinformation. David is joining us from Ireland. Thanks, David, and welcome to the lab. Good to be here. Thanks, Lauren. Uh, I think David might be the first person ever on the Gadget Lab podcast to join us from Cork, Ireland. <laughs> is that true, Mike? You've been hosting this a lot longer than I have. Have uh, you ever had a guest on from Cork before? I, th- I, th- I don't think so. I think David's a first. I'm glad to be filling that huge oversight in uh, Wired's <laughs> podcast history. Truly. We might, and we're going to have to have you back on regularly now just to compensate for that. Um, today, we're actually talking about something much, much more serious, misinformation. Misinformation has been running rampant in the wake of Hamas's deadly attacks on Israel nearly two weeks ago. And the violence has continued to escalate. David, you've been covering this story for Wired. And you noted in your story that people who were turning to Twitter, and I'm just going to call it Twitter, but of course, it's all—it's now called X, people who were turning to Twitter for up-to-date news on the conflict have been seeing lots of old repurposed videos, fake photos, and 
other media that researchers say is just it's at unprecedented levels. It seems as though we've entered a new era, both geopolitically and technologically. Uh, so, David, we wanted to pull back from the conflict itself and talk about this level of fake information. And I wanted to ask you a pretty simple question to start, which is, what is the difference between misinformation and disinformation? Because we hear those terms a lot and sometimes interchangeably. Yeah, and I think a lot of people do use them interchangeably and it's it can be kind of confusing at times. But for me, it's it pretty simple, really. Misinformation is information that's posted that is inaccurate, incorrect, lacks context, whereas disinformation has the added extra element that it's done uh, on purpose and for nefarious purpose. So whether it's part of a coordinated campaign, like we've seen coming out of the Kremlin for many years, um, or an individual who's trying to trick people into clicking on a link and donating money to the to the wrong thing. So disinformation has a purpose behind it, whereas misinformation is just people clicking share when they don't know any better. Hmm. So disinformation could also be classified as like propaganda. Uh, yeah, essentially, it, it it's a it's a form of propaganda. I see. So it sounds like there's an intentionality behind the disinformation, but misinformation could it's it's, it's sums up kind of the spreading of news that is not real. It's not accurate. Exactly. And like oftentimes disinformation, the the this intentional dissemination of inaccurate material to back up your own narrative or your own side of the story then turns into misinformation when people share us, not necessarily because they think they're sharing something that's wrong, but because they think it's actually true and they're sharing it because they think it'll help inform other people. Mm. Right. Okay. W what is the most troubling example of disinformation or misinformation you've seen so far during this particular conflict? Um, I, uh, the most troubling aspect for me is just how easy it has been for this, whether it's disinformation or misinformation, because we've seen both and we've seen it from both sides of the right. This isn't a partisan issue. This isn't one side just doing it and the other side not doing it. In disinformation in the Israel-Palestine conflict is coming from all sides. What is amazing to me, even after years of covering this, is just how basic and unsophisticated some of this missing disinformation is and yet it is gaining tens of thousands hundreds of thousands even millions of views and clicks um on social media and we're still even years down the line we're still at a point where this stuff just goes viral and before anyone can fact check it before anyone can take it down off the platforms so the platforms have mechanisms in place, obviously, to um, to spot misinformation or disinformation on their platforms and to you know keep it from showing up in people's feeds. What role have those mechanisms played over the last two, three weeks as the conflict has escalated? So, yeah, we've seen the all the different platforms take different steps to tackle this problem over the years. So on, I suppose, the, the most prominent example over the last week has been Twitter. And we've seen over the course of the last year, we've seen Elon Musk decimate the trust and safety team, content moderation teams on the platform to the point now where there is effectively nothing stopping people spreading disinformation. And so we've just had an absolute flood of inaccurate posts, as you explained, Lauren, old videos repurposed. We've seen a lot of video game footage posted claiming that it was coming from the conflict and being shared credibly, which is 
just amazing to me because it takes a couple of seconds to look at it and go, well, no, that's not real. But people just don't take the time. Um, on Facebook, they have this, they have a better level of moderation for this stuff, especially graphic, um, violent videos, which they, they kind of take down re relatively quickly. But then once you move outside the English language content, the moderation on Arabic content is completely different and they just haven't invested in the resources to um, deal with it properly. So they over moderate and take down any mention of, for example, the word Hamas. Even if you're criticizing Hamas, they will take that down. Um, and then in Hebrew language, they don't moderate enough and therefore hate speech gets true. It's just an indication again of how platforms like Facebook and Instagram haven't really got to grips with non-English language content and they're failing yet again to deal with it properly. So it, it, each platform has its own issues um, and it depends on, you know, what kind of systems that they have put in place. Other platforms for threads, for example, just doesn't promote news whatsoever. They've been pretty open about it. They don't want news on their platform. Um, and TikTok is very similar. They, they suppress news and that's their way effectively of dealing with it. But the problem is that because so many people, young people in particular, use TikTok, they therefore don't get any information. And so they're kind of left in the dark, effectively. So none of them are doing a really great job around this, but some are doing better than, than others. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you, wouldn't an obvious answer or a solution be, well, just don't go on Twitter, right? For journalists, <laughs> for researchers, for average citizens, but it doesn't sound like the other platforms are doing a great job of this either. And particularly if they are depressing or deprioritizing news, but the fake news and fake content is able to bubble its way to the top of the feed, then there's almost nothing there to counteract that, right? You're not getting an, a dispatch from Wired or Bloomberg or the New York Times or the BBC or something that says, like, here's what's actually going on. Yeah, like, it is it is easy to say, you know, just don't go on Twitter. But for years, like for all its failings, the brilliant thing about Twitter is that when something like this happened previously and you went on there, what you would see is firsthand, not even BBC or New York Times or Wired or anything, you'd see firsthand account of people on the ground who are posting videos directly to um, news agencies in Gaza, news agencies in Israel who would be posting primary mm -hmm. footage to Twitter and you would be able to... Um, because they would have been verified in the past, you would you'd be able to trust to a degree what they were posting. Whereas now the mm -hmm. people you're seeing at the top are verified, but they're not journalists. They are people who are trying to game game the system and get as much engagement as they possibly can to grow their subscriber base and therefore earn more money. Right, because people can now just pay for a blue check mark. Exactly. And Twitter was an important app for dissenters for a long time as well. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Like it, it's such a shame what's happened to it because it has been a very important tool to give a voice to people who otherwise may not have a voice. And it's, there, there is no other app out there in terms of seeing a real time newsfeed, um, when incidents like this are happening. And unfortunately, what's happened over the last year has completely destroyed that experience to the point where it is pretty much unusable as a source of news anymore. The The company does have a tool for folks to mark up their feeds uh, and help identify things that could be misinformation or disinformation. It's called Community Notes. 
Uh, could you tell us a little bit about how this tool works and specifically how it's been used over the last month or so? Sure. Yeah. So Community Notes is effectively what Elon Musk has done is getting gotten rid of all the people in the Trust and Safety team, the Trust and Safety Council, which was hundreds of um, civil society groups around the world who are working directly with Twitter. So replacing them has been Twitter users. And it initially started off as a pilot program, very small. It was called Birdwatch. It they did, Twitter did never really rolled it out that much. And when the Ukraine crisis happened, they were criticized for not doing so. When Musk came in, he decided that he was going to ramp this up. And so he brought in a load more contributors. And the idea is that as people scroll through Twitter as normal, they're able to write notes on tweets that they think are inaccurate or lack context. And then other contributors can vote on that. And once enough people have voted, then that note is made public. Um, and so in, in theory, it sounds like a good idea. But these I've been it's speaking... like Wikipedia for Twitter. Exactly. And interestingly, a lot of the contributors are also editors on Wikipedia, I found out, because I spoke to about half a dozen of them this week. And the half dozen that I spoke to across the board, all of them said that it is an absolute mess. It isn't fit for purpose, they described it as. They said that there are a um, number of them said that there were uh, Musk fanboys or Musk sycophants on the platform who every time Elon Musk posts a tweet even if it's controversial or misleading, no note will appear because they will downvote any critical note of him saying that this is Elon Musk, it's his opinion, he can say what he wants. Um, I've had access to the community notes system this week through another account, and I've seen it firsthand and on a lot of posts about the crisis in Israel and Gaza. There's just community notes contributors fighting amongst themselves spreading disinformation bo boosting conspiracy theories and it it's just another level of disinformation and misinformation on a platform that's already full of misinformation so it really isn't working as effectively as twitter claims because this week when it's been criticized for disinformation it's claimed look community notes has reached this many people we've got added 10,000 new contributors but if you look at what's happening in reality the the system is just not having any real impact and in a lot of cases it's having a negative impact on the amount of disinformation out there so we certainly can't rely on the platforms to make changes that are going to help thwart this disinformation um i guess the next question is what role do regulators play uh, we should probably note that earlier this week U.S. Democratic Senator Michael Bennett put out a request for information on how all of these tech giants are handling the spread of false and misleading content about the Israel-Hamas conflict. Uh, that's just one U.S. lawmaker, but also European Union industry chief Terry Breton has blasted the tech companies, too. I'm wondering what you think might come of this. Uh, how much of this is grandstanding? Will this have any effect? Is it too late? Uh, yeah, all of those. It's grandstanding. It's too late. Huh. Nothing will come of this. Uh, Thierry I was Breton... trying not to be too cynical, <laughs> but <laughs> um, yes, Thierry Breton, like the EU, I suppose, has been seen for years as leading in it in the pushback against uh, social media platforms, and there's been lots of fines handed down. And Germany has enacted a law that is much more stringent in terms of hate speech on the platforms, and it is enforcing it to an extent. And 
the European Union brought in the Digital Safety Act um, two months ago, which is meant to mm. put more pressure on Twitter and Facebook and other big social media companies. But what Breton uh, came out with in his letter, which he addressed to Elon Musk instead of Linda Yaccarino, the CEO of Twitter, who he should have um, addressed it to just... And he, then he went and had a back and forth with Musk on Twitter. It, it was all just officials in the EU who we spoke to this week just were saying this is just grandstanding there's an election coming up he's looking to get his name in the newspapers and what he was proposing was going way beyond what the digital safety act and was effectively kind of how the great firewall of china started off and so people are just saying that what he was suggesting was completely over the top was not really feasible um, and when I spoke to an EU official, asked him for a kind of a step by step of what, when would we get to the point where Twitter would actually be banned in Europe? It's like twelve steps down the line when there's fines and fines and fines. So, um, I, I in Europe, I just don't think there may be a fine. I don't think Elon Musk would really care about a fine. Um, in the US, similarly, I there is no that for years they've been trying to do something and gotten nowhere as far as I can see. So I really I really don't think there's anything regulators are going to be able to do either. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how artificial intelligence has juiced this entire world of fake media, not just during violent conflicts, but in elections, in popular culture, and even in porn sites. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, B as in boy, I, N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Misinformation has a long, long history. But if you've been listening to this podcast in recent weeks, you are now well aware that there are new tools out there that are letting pretty much anyone with a laptop or a smartphone gin up realistic looking and sounding fake news. So, David, in the Israel-Hamas conflict, how much of the fake media that researchers have been seeing so far is likely attached in some way to generative AI tools? Um. Not very much um, that I've seen. In fact, a lot of it is just very basic um, repurposed videos, Photoshop videos. I guess you know there, there was a there was a photograph of of Ronaldo, the soccer player, holding a Palestinian flag, which was it appears to be photoshopped rather than created by 
it could have been created by an AI platform. It was pretty crude, but um, there hasn't been a huge amount of it that I've seen so far, though. Um, that could that could obviously change. That actually surprises me a little bit. I thought that generative AI content would be a little bit more prevalent in this particular conflict. Um, maybe the tools aren't as easy to use as we're surmising here. I think that's that. It's it's a really interesting question though because I think. A lot of people and a lot of experts in misinformation and disinformation area have have been raising the issue of generative AI for for months, possibly years now, and we've we have seen it in a number of coordinated campaigns. China's been using um, generative AI tools for creating, you know, um, fake avatars for their social media profiles, um, but. Uh, I think we're still waiting for the point where it kind of tips the balance and we see it as a significant driver of a disinformation campaign. Um, but the tools are out there and they're becoming much, much more freely available. And therefore, the barrier for entry to this sort of thing is getting lower all the time. Speaking of which, I know there's been a lot of attention paid to the visual Gen AI tools and particularly images, right? It's very easy to, to type in a prompt and create an image. It's more difficult to type in a prompt and create a video. But something that we've seen a lot of is audio deepfakes, audio hoaxes, uh, where you know you can use a computer to clone a person's voice and have it say things that the person never said. Um, you know, Lauren got pitched on a tool that made it sound like she was speaking in Spanish. They trained this tool on uh, on one of your your other podcasts, That's right. right? Yeah. Uh, using and they were your... pitching us and saying, we can translate your other podcast into Spanish. Here yeah. you go. And it was me and Gideon speaking in fluent Spanish. So it actually was what you were saying, but it was eerie because it did right. sound like you speaking in very fast, very clipped, like Catalan Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that that I, I want to ask you about, David, is that the, with these audio hoaxes, it seems as though they are easier to get past the systems that are set up to spot these things, right? Like it's there there are very sophisticated tools for detecting um, an AI generated image and an AI generated video, but the those tools are not as tuned to detecting AI generated audio. Is that right? Yeah, and. The, the audio seems to be the one that is gaining quite a lot of traction, not necessarily in kind of coordinated disinformation campaigns, but more uh, people, individuals maybe who are who are seeking to just cause chaos themselves or, you know, just playing a prank. And it seems like the platforms are struggling to stop the spread of those. Now, you say that there's tools to detect image and video AI generated content. I I would be interested to see once that kind of stuff starts rolling out more and more, how effective those tools are, whether it'll be a game of cat and mouse and the the image and video generated stuff will kind of stay a step ahead. It it's hard to know because I guess I just don't trust the, the whatever the platforms are saying that they're going to be able to detect something that they're actually telling the truth because they don't really have a history of, you know, being accurate and being right about this stuff. So that'll be interesting to say. Um, but yeah, like that, that example you gave, Laura, about the, your voice being translated, it, it, these tools are so 
easily available now. And I, I actually tried one recently where it's actually a video one where you post a video of you saying something in English, you upload it and it sends it back to you and you, you, you pick what language and it not only does the voice, but it also changes your mouth to make it look as if you're speaking French or Spanish or German. Um, and it's, it is, it's not perfect. And if you actually looked at it closely, you would know it's not real. But as we've seen with this stuff in, in Gaza, people don't look closely. People click if they think it's interesting or backs up their worldview, they're going to share it to their audience. And that's all it takes. Terrifying. <laughs> really is. So now there are major concerns that with the upcoming U.S. presidential election, supporters for both political parties are going to be using these extremely accessible AI tools to make fake stuff and sway voters. In fact, Wired even published an article earlier this year titled Brace Yourself for the 2024 Deepfake Election. How are we actually supposed to brace ourselves, though? What can we do to sift through all of the the noise, in some instances, fake noise? Um, yeah, it's it's going to get incredibly difficult as you say like there's already stuff out there there was the video of um hillary clinton supporting ron DeSantis. i think was was one of the um videos that i saw and there was um uh, the actually the republican national committee posted a video where it kind of painted this dystopian scenario where uh if president biden got elected again we'd see kind of you know uh, China invading Taipei and lots of other stuff that hasn't actually happened, but looks as it looked as if it would happen. Um, how to spot this stuff is, I think at the moment, the video stuff, unless, like if it's done by a professional team, then it's difficult to spot. If it's done by kind of the freely available AI tools, if you look at it closely, it's still not that hard to spot um but to give you an example of how hard it is even at this point there was a the bbc have a a weekly quiz where they ask you to look at eight images or videos and you decide whether it's real or it's ai and today i got six out of eight so that kind of tells you that this is going to be incredibly difficult and when to for people to to deal with and once we get to the point where it's kind of widespread and we're not there yet i don't think once it's widespreadly you know the people are using these tools on a regular basis and campaigns are using them then we're going to have a real problem on our hands hmm. uh i want to i want to ask about pornography uh particularly fake pornography so as we've been talking about um, a lot of these uh, videos that are uploaded uh, is for, in the political sphere are so effective because they reinforce people's worldview. They show them something that they are already maybe predisposed to believing. Um, with non-consensual porn, like particularly somebody is a big fan of a particular actor and then they make a porn video showing that actor engaging in sexual acts, uh, it's not so much about reinforcing somebody's worldview. It's about giving them something that like maybe already exists in their imagination. And here it is in front of them in a way that is believable. So it's like, it doesn't really matter to them that it's fake. The you consumer, know? you mean? Yeah. Yeah. To right. The, because the for the person, it's a very unique and insidious form of abuse. Yes, it absolutely is. But for the people who are making it and for the people who, who are consuming it and for the websites that are hosting, hosting it, it, yeah. um, it, it is, you know, it's uh, it's entertainment and it's understood 
from the beginning is entertainment. So it's while it is abuse, it is a it's a different set of consequences and it's a different set of priorities for the people who are making it. And I'm just I'm curious if you have thoughts about how this is going to play out over the next couple of years. Um, yeah, it's a huge, huge problem. Um, Matt Burgess was writing about it for, for Word this week about the scale of the problem and how, um, it's, it's so pervasive and it's, it's, it, this isn't coming about in the last six months. We've, we've kind of been seeing this stuff crude initially for about four or five years ago, but now extremely sophisticated. And some of the people who are making this stuff are, doing so at a, at a really, really high level. And it's it's actually where some of the most advanced deepfake technology is being used. Like we've always seen the porn industry has been kind of at the cutting edge of technology going all the way back mm-hmm. from VHSs to DVDs to, to online and now deepfakes. And I, I can't see a way about how this is pulled back. This is the cat is out of the bag. There are there are discord servers where you can go on you can send them send someone images of anyone whether it's an actress that you like or it is a girl who lives down the street or a boy who lives down the street you send them video or images of those and they will come back to you you pay them a nominal amount of money and they will come back to you with a deep fake porn video in the space of hours that is relatively uh, convincing looking and I think uh, at this point, we're we're so far beyond kind of trying to either do something to prevent the technology being used in this way that the only way that it can be really tackled is through legislation and where this kind of stuff is explicitly made illegal to non-consensually use someone's image in a deepfake porn. Um, but again, I'm not sure how long that, kind of regulation will take or if there is even um, someone who is going to kind of stand up and and push that legislation forward. Hmm. David, while we have you on the Gadget Lab, to the start of many, many Gadget Labs with you to make up for our lack of... Hopefully cheerier Gadget Labs. Hopefully cheerier. (laughs) We have to ask you, how do you approach this as a misinformation and disinformation reporter? What's your approach to OPSEC? Like, how do you how do you determine what's fake and what's not? And you might I mean, you're flooded with information as you're reporting on this issue. Yeah, um, it's it's really difficult. This week has kind of been probably one of the most difficult weeks in terms of making sure that what we're seeing and what we're doing is you know, we're not we're not adding to the problem that we're accurately reporting what's happening. Um and it just it just a lot of the time what it requires is slowing down, is not needing to be the first person to repost something or if you find something you think is, you know, an amazing scoop is not to just rush and try and get it out and post about it on social media. It's to stop, it's to think about it, it's to go, okay, where does this come from? And just it's just all this is about is tracing it back to its primary source and that can be hugely difficult these days but you have to make an effort and if you can't back it up or you can't find out where something's coming from and verify that it's true you just you just don't share it you don't add to the problem um but it's it's getting extremely extremely hard and i saw this week um how one open source investigator who 
I know and have followed his work for, for years, retweeted a fake Jerusalem Post Twitter account because they were saying that Benjamin Netanyahu had been hospitalized, which wasn't true. Um, and they got tricked. And that account had like, it looked for all the world like a Jerusalem Post Twitter account that had a verified badge, but it just wasn't, it wasn't real. Um, so it's getting increasingly difficult. The platforms aren't making it any easier. Um, so you just have to, you just have to try and slow down. You try and do as much work as possible to figure out where a picture, a video, or a comment is coming from and if it's real um, before you share it with anyone else. Good advice and good words to live by. Uh, let's take a break and then we're going to come back with our recommendations. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. David, as our guest of honor, we'd love for you to go first. What is your recommendation for our Gadget Lab listeners? So this this probably isn't very Gadget Lab-y, uh, but it's a book that I read this week that um, I just loved. Um, it's called A Heart That Works, and it's by the actor Rob Delaney, um, who was in the recent Mission Impossible movie, actually. But he's a, he's a comedic actor, um, and he wrote a book about his two-year-old son, Henry, and how he died of a brain tumor. Now, I realize that's that doesn't sound like a very fun thing to be reading about, but it the book is, like, he's it, it's a darkly funny book. Um, it So I, I basically spent the whole time either laughing out loud or in floods of tears reading this book. And it's it's not a long book. You could easily read it in three or four hours if you if you had the time and it was just um life affirming and it was beautifully written and i would heartily recommend it to anyone whether they're a parent or not um to 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 give it a read because it's just a beautiful book about um a dad and his love for his son and finding kind of the humor in what was a horrific situation. Um, and again, I realize that's not a very cheery uh, topic, but it is it is a really good book. I'm adding it to Goodreads right now. So thank you for that. And also we welcome recommendations of all stripes here on the Gadget Lab podcast. If that was life affirming for you in some way, then we appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And also follow Rob Delaney on Instagram because he is extremely funny. He is indeed. Okay, adding that. You said it was called, what was that again? A Heart That Works. A Heart That Works. I had followed a little bit of Rob's story on Twitter, and it was incredibly sad and touching. Yeah, it's okay. it's amazing. 
want to read the, added to the list. The sound you hear is Lauren actually adding it to Goodreads. That's right. Good. Thank you for that, David. No problem. Michael, what's your recommendation? I'm also going to recommend a book. Okay. Uh, it's a book that is quite old. Uh, it's like maybe a year old. It's called Surrender, and it's by Bono. So yes, I'm I'm recommending Bono's book. I know we have all had a little bit too much of Bono in our lives over the last years and decades, and particularly over the last month or so with U2's uh, Stand at the Sphere. But uh, I was not really interested in reading Bono's book when it came out. Uh, a close friend of mine who I play music with read it, and he said, you really need to read this book. There's a lot of stuff in there about creating music and about creativity, and you have to you have to check it out. So on his recommendation, I checked it out, and it's a delight. It's a very good book. Um, Bono, you know, he he has this interesting sort of power in the world because he's the front man of the biggest band in the world. And he has access to people and to places that most of us can't go. Uh, he also just wants to do good, um, sometimes performatively, sometimes privately. But his motivations are pure, and his actions, for the most part, are also very pure. And I respect that about him. Uh, the book is unconventional. It is uh, based around 40 different songs that he's written in his life. And he uses these songs as sort of windows into his biographical story and the story of his band. Uh, but it is just it is very well written. Uh, and I really liked the structure. The structure, I think, is the thing that actually makes the book work in a way that a lot of, you know, rock star autobiographies don't work. Uh, also, just really great stuff about the creative process and about what it was like to pull together some of the songs that we all know and love from U2. Um, I am I'm not making this recommendation because our guest happens to be <laughs> Irish. Ask you that. It's okay. I'm <laughs> it's just, just turning on my video to show you this. I also just read the book. Um, you just it's, read Surrender. It's yeah, amazing. it's on my bedside lockers. The book I read before, A Heart That Breaks, and I couldn't agree with you more. It's um, it's an incredible book, and I that's as someone as a lot of like a lot of Irish people don't exactly love Bono, but I thought I yeah. I have a newfound respect for him after reading his book. Exactly the same. I have so many questions right now. Well, uh, quickly, I will okay. say. The audiobook is excellent. I Apparently chose the audiobook. So. Yeah, I've, I've heard. He narrates it. Yeah, I've heard it's really, really good. It is. Uh, I mean, you can't imagine a world in which Bono would let anybody else read his book in, into the microphone, but it's, uh, it really elevates the experience. I read one chapter on my Kindle and then I immediately switched to the audiobook. David, two questions for you. Okay. One, and now that I see you on video, are you wearing an Irish wool sweater? Um, it's no. It looks I actually, like a proper. I actually sweater. bought it in London when I was in London recently. Oh, so. oh, oh dear. Sorry, okay, I know. Uh, also, <laughs> why don't some Irish people like Bono? Um, because this is the most controversial part of this podcast. Because mm -hmm. Irish people have an issue with people being too successful. Uh, so we uh. think we think Bono's got too big for his boots. His his okay. his his, okay. his one inch heel boots. Um. <laughs> we yeah like there's kind of a resentment i guess for, among a lot of people but like reading this book just 
he's yeah, like his the perception of him is or a lot of people's perception seems to be completely wrong. He's very funny. He's a brilliant writer. And the, some of the stories in it, especially the stuff around how he wanted to make, he didn't want to just remain kind of on one level. He always was trying to push the envelope and do something different. A lot of times it didn't work, but it, it's just really a really interesting book. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm going to have to borrow one of the two copies that my brothers rejected last Christmas. <laughs> this is why I'm laughing. Last Christmas, I heard great things about the book. I bought two hardcover copies, brought them home, and gave them to my older brothers, and both rejected them. They were oh. like, eh, eh. So I, you know. Honestly, I, I had the same reaction. And, and I, they're also musicians. Like one's a professional musician, the other's an amateur musician. I was like, you're going to be into this. And they, they, they were not. They should read the book. I agree. Yeah. And now I'm going to read it too. So this is my recommendation. Get over it. Read Bono's book. Read Bono's book. Okay. Yeah. What's your recommendation, Lauren? My recommendation is not a book. Although, you know, it's funny. The book I'm reading right now is about Ireland, but I'm going to put a pin in that, David, and we're going to come back to that. Okay. Um, my recommendation is I'm going to turn the tables a little bit and ask our listeners for a recommendation for me. I need a new workout playlist. I did this thing for a couple of years where I was slowly building up an exercise playlist on Spotify because while I was exercising, I would hear a song that I would like, I would tag it, as you know, and then it would be sent to this playlist. And I've experienced this thing recently where when I'm running or doing anything vigorous, I put it on and I'm just... I hate every song. Nope, not that one. Nope, next song. Next, next. And I realize it's because that if you make a playlist as you are exercising, your endorphins are flowing and you think everything sounds great. You're mm -hmm. like, yeah, I'm really into this. And it turns out it's not a very good. It's not a good playlist <laughs> at all. So if any of you, our dear Gadget Lab listeners or my colleagues here have really good workout playlists, I prefer things with lyrics for exercise. I do like instrumental music, but like I, I'm looking for lyrics, a little bit of distraction, t tend to gravitate towards pop or something like it when I'm exercising. If you have recommendations, find me on all the platforms. You, also, my email is out there in the world, lauren underscore good at wire.com. Send me your, your workout playlist recommendation. I'd love to I'd love to hear it. You know, something new. Lauren, you could take the 40 or so songs that are in the Bono book and create a playlist out of that. And then you could use it as a workout playlist and read the book at the same time okay. to get a proper, fully immersive experience. 40 okay. songs, okay. one workout. This is going to be the last moment of Bono bashing on this podcast. It turns out, David, I already have a full YouTube album on my iPhone. Do you want to know why? Because they, they forced you to put it there. That's not a reason Thank why people much. don't like Bono. Still mad. Yeah. Still <laughs> mad about that. Does he address this in the book? Yes. Yeah. Yes, a few times. I actually, I actually like after he, the last Apple event in earlier this year in September, I tweeted, another Apple event has gone by, still mad about you too. And I got a flurry <laughs> of responses. Yeah. I think it was the last time I was on Twitter too. So yeah, uh, yeah but no, uh, you know, I did actually listen last night as I was, as I was running, uh, David, I listened to Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses and I did not, reject that one i didn't say next i was like okay this is a pretty good jam great tune yeah. yeah best album yeah all right well that's our show for this week uh david thank you so much for joining us thank you for sharing your wisdom 
We'd love to have you back on. Uh, like we said earlier, we need a little more guests from Cork. Um, my, did I tell you my great my grandfather? My great grandfather's from Cork. No. I'm gonna uh, yeah. I'm gonna send you his address. So you can. Uh, <laughs> it's a whole, we'll do a whole other podcast. You can just it. walk. What's his name? What's his name? Thomas Good. Thomas, you can just walk outside and yell Thomas. <laughs> yeah, but well, he's it's been long gone. Oh, okay. Uh, but yes. Uh, and no, Ireland's yeah. small. It's not that small though. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if it's near you. I would love to. I'd love to know. It, every, um, everything is near me in Ireland. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thank you so much for joining us. It's it's been it's really been lovely having you on. It's been great. And Mike, thanks as always for being a great co-host. Of course, you're welcome. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter question mark Threads, Instagram, Mastodon, Blue Sky. I don't know. Just check the show notes. We'll be there. Our producer is the excellent Boone Ashworth, who, I have to note, rode an electric jet ski this week, came back in one piece, and came back raving about it. (laughs) Uh, His photos are super cool. It looked incredible. These are real photos, not fake photos. So everyone should go check out that story on Wired.com later this week. Goodbye for now, and we'll be back next week. Who's gonna ride your electric jet ski? (laughs) (laughs) There's your sting for the show, Boone. (laughs) Hackers and cyber criminals have always held this kind of special fascination. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. And on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them. We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it. Click here. Stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. AI machines. Satellite. Engine ignition. Click here. And liftoff. Click here. Every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.